0: Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 Podcast. In this episode, in the Tech Ops series, we dive into how to automate against APIs. And we discuss exactly the ways in which you can use APIs effectively, ways in which you can run into traps and trouble, um, which is really what most of the discussion ends up being about. And really think through how you should be looking at consuming APIs, both as a consumer of APIs, as we all are, but also uh, in times when we have produced APIs, from learning how people consume our APIs and what, what we can do to help make them better and safer. Um, I know that you'll get a lot out of this and uh, it is just part of the broader tech Ops series where we are diving in deep in uh, tips and techniques that improve your journey as an automator.
1: Well, cool.
0: Um, it's actually a nice week when we don't have some major tech controversy going on in the background um, oh you know what we didn't talk about that I thought we would talk about um, oh, we can do this briefly it's the UEFI um, issue plus you, uh, did, had you said you wanted to hear about that and then we just didn't have time
1: or I don't think it was me but okay. uh, remind me is this the the recent vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I just mentioned in pa in passing on, on, on someone else said, yeah, this is uninteresting to talk about in the future. Ah, uh, right.
0: Okay. Yeah, because we had posted, I think I gave a link, we had posted um our analysis of it. Um yeah, the the naming creativity was way down on this one. I think they just called it ufi fail. Um but yeah. I don't know, I, it's funny, I mean, we saw it, we thought it was pretty significant, and like a lot of BIOS uh, hacks, it, it nobody nobody seems to pick it up or care. This one's specifically on net net provisioning, which is not a mainstream news item, so. A little sad. A little, a
2: little sad. And it about was there. IPv6 related, so. And I, good point,
0: yeah. Two things that nobody seems to get worked up about. <laughs> I think I think we 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 have like ten people in the in the planet who uh, actually care about that 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 Venn diagram intersection. Oh dear,
3: that's.
1: I mean, I I, I personally would love for IPv6 to to reach a critical mass of adoption. Um, like it would solve so many of my nadding problems. Mm. but um, <laughs> um until there's enough vendor support and and just infrastructure support in general um it's hard to do like well, unfortunately like having a public service in, on on ipv6 still means that you're cutting off a significant portion of the the planet from being able to use it
0: is it is it really that
1: Oh yeah, like like for example, a large portion of India is IPv4 only. Huh. Uh, And under there's several other networks that that suffer from this the same problem. Yeah,
0: because I had assumed with the cell networks, especially, and also you know, know, the U.S. has been hoarding IPv4, so I had assumed that people didn't have a lot of choice, unless, I guess, you went private networks inside of your your. You go to firewall, and you could you could have a private private sites on the non routable IPs. How how do they make that work?
1: Um, Like magic, as far (laughs) as I'm concerned.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just yeah, it's been it's funny because there was even in in for awesome discussions. IPv6. We we had a couple of IPv6 conversations. I think we had Ed Horley on, and then um, I haven't heard about it much at all from like from from a customer perspective. Greg, may you might have more insight on on active interest.
2: For these, not, I mean, there's a few people who ask about it, but in general, it's in environments that aren't necessarily doing provisioning or pixing for us. Yeah, it's just not an issue right now. We'll see as we move forward with our um, HTTP boot sequences. Right, that becomes a different story. But right now, as long as everything's still Pixie, it's B six kind of isn't a topic. Do you, for man- do you th- managing machines?
0: Do you think because that? That would be a place where UFI this UFI bug is actually more threatening, right? If if somebody's looking to migrate to UEFI from a provisioning perspective and eliminate the HTTP, you know, HTTP, TT, uh, DHCP of that whole sequence, um, does that set that back?
2: Well, you still you still need a a UFI bootloader it's just Mm -hmm. how you get it and when you move to http or https booting you in theory can use v6 easier to pull a bootloader in which case you're now open to the problem though in some regards the problem is also not that it was i mean while it was poorly written code to some degree it's also the acknowledgement that the efi stacks on these systems are minimal stacks right they're not in they weren't and aren't intended to necessarily be hardened so they're not like your traditional windows or linux networking stack where they have Lots of resources and lots of components that go and make that secure and handle all of the edge cases, of which IPv6 added a lot of new edge cases.
1: Um, Unfortunately, the uh, the the story that consumers uh, were being sold about Unified was that it was more secure, particularly with their, like around secure boot. So unfortunately, it makes uh, yeah. some assumptions that uh, are made. I, I'm, I'm not arguing that the assumptions are correct. It's just they exist. The, the thing
0: I've seen is just secure boot, ter- enabling secure boot requires op- some operational capabilities that, you know, even our more advanced customers are s- are
1: slow to adopt. Yeah, absolutely. Like the the only ones who really benefited from secure boot were Microsoft and being able to lock down the bootloader on their consumer hardware, right?
2: Um, I would also add that the financial institutions and stuff that care to spend and have the resources and environments also get to take advantage of it because it's the chaining that some of the distributions specifically red hat and vmware put into it to make it a viable path but yeah general linux consumption cloud consumption they don't have a use for it or it doesn't it's harder
1: to use and implement by design yeah (laughs)
0: yeah
1: Yeah. (laughs) Indeed.
0: Speaking of design, I'm gonna. I'll transition us to um, talking about the the topic of the day. And so, my my hope with this, and as a reminder, right, um, my goal for the series here is to be able to dive into 200 level content. So, um, I, I would encourage everybody, you know. As you're listening, if you have stories or something, you know anecdotes are helpful from uh, a sharing perspective. So it's not, you know, I, I want to go through. We we talked about APIs two weeks ago, three weeks ago, sort of generally, and a lot of pieces. What I'm what I'm hoping to do today is actually focus in on this idea of automating against an API. So consuming an API. Um, we'll have a, a different session on. Consuming it, but then or uh, designing APIs, um, but sort of talking through this idea of if I'm if I'm writing code against an API from an automation perspective and an ops perspective, what do we what do we need to keep in mind? Where are the gotchas? What are some t- uh, tool, tricks of the trade? Um, things that we can use to help make the systems more resilient and secure. And so I have a ton of of sort of cedar questions from that perspective um, um and and last week we talked about this vendor vendor cli versus using the vendors apis um and as from a continuity perspective that might be a an interesting place to start because um, we, we we talked through this how the clis are helpful what do what do we need to think about when we're actually using a vendors API directly um and i'm
1: I'm pausing for oh i i can you can definitely give uh, a situation where using a cli tool is ends up being more problematic than using the api directly that sounds great. And that is when you're interacting with the service out of a container. Because huh. um like take our use case, for example, uh, Terraform. Wait, so a, we so we service
0: uh, which which direction do you mean? Service where you're going from the container out, not from the container in,
1: right? Yeah. So when okay. when when you when you have like for example we we use uh, Atlantis to to, uh, to, to manage our Terraform infrastructure, but but really th- this is applicable to any kind of uh, infrastructure as code environment where not not every service has a proper Terraform module available. Or, or they might have only a third-party one that is not vetted. In okay. which case, you need to interact with the service directly, either by a script or a binary that you write yourself uh, that interacts with the API or via the CLI tool. The problem with the CLI tool is that as the service evolves, it frequently requires the CLI CLI tools to be kept up to date, which, if you package those along with your Terraform resources, pro- that gives you a versioning problem. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so actually having the CLI tool to interact with ends up being counterproductive because you have no way of declaratively saying I'm interacting with this specific version of the service.
0: Okay. Which almost ends up being a a benefit of the right. Last week we talked about CLIs having some version ag- agnosticism as a benefit, but here what you're you're describing is um it potentially interfering with you're using other integrating with other tools.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I mean, in that context, CLIs are the equivalent of rolling release distros. where where you have more bleeding edge and and as long as you stay current most of the time you're fine but if you need a deterministic version you are SOL.
0: it's interesting because i'm part of what i'm thinking through is uh and we need to talk through some of the challenges with authentication and semantics but you know if if when we've when we've tried to do this and you end up hacking a container full of like a whole bunch of clis and a whole bunch of terraform providers and and the updates of that container become a mess and if you just need to do one thing or you need to just pull something from a an api a lot of times it's you know if if the calls are straightforward it's a big if Mm -hmm. then that can be a really effective way to just pull a piece of data yeah right um it, you know the the challenge I get into because I looked at this from a Amazon perspective. Just handling the authentication process to use an uh, API turned out to be a pretty big burden. Um, it required it's not a single right for to get a token to interact with the AWS. Uh, API you actually and this isn't uncommon for i mean they're an example but you need to have at least a round trip to authenticate pull back a token use the token um, and then you know make that part of your your calls going forward so there's there's an overhead
1: yeah uh, it's a, it's a sharp curve to to enter mm-hmm. the thing though is once you are using the API so once you have your authentication out of the way any additional API that you're uh, part of the API that you're using, the effort is lower. It's only a fraction because you have already authenticated once, right? So, um, so the more you use it, the more the API it is actually uh, and, easier and to less, work with.
0: And the less overhead because you can almost always run to curl. And and pulls, you know, like, oh, I need something. Go go pull it out using curl. Um, but, I, but that's not trivial, right? I mean, no. APIs behave in weird ways sometimes. It's not just as simple as like, here's, you know, go get this data. You might end up getting back all sorts of, you know, um, redirects or bit more data than you want. Um, I'm trying to think. So, yeah, go
3: ahead. Yeah, my experience here, I I would say, I rarely see myself using something like Curl directly. Um, I think maybe taking a step back and and saying, you know, what is the environment that you're running in? It sounds like you're anticipating that users are primarily running this from a shell script or something like that. And and is that always the right assumption? In in my background, uh, I'm coming from inside of a service that has facilities for handling all the, you know, API calls and fallbacks and uh, timeouts and handling all the error conditions. And so the burden of, hooking into the API once is even lower than something like kernel, where you have to figure out how to carry forward credentials. And uh, so I, I say, you know, how how would I decide that, and I think there's just a lot of nuance in what is the calling side look like? And what does the receiving side look like? How deeply are we interacting with the API? Because if I'm Deeply interacting, I might want to hook into the API using code. Uh, well, it, you're you're hitting exactly the type of of question
0: and dilemma that I, I want us to be exploring, because like the the uh, and I'm putting on an automation hat with this because one of the challenges is if you write something in code, like you throw it to Python, um, you know, or potentially even you know something more like a Go module or something like that. Once you've done that, then Changing or updating the API, or even seeing what it did, can become um, a problem, right? So you might say, "Oh, I'm gonna, I want the tools that you're describing. Wrap it in per in in a in a Python script, right?" And now you're you're you know now if that API changes or it behaves in a, in a weird way, it might be actually harder to diagnose, but right there's a trade-off, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there are trade-offs there. So do you, do you have a rule of thumb that you try to follow? Like when uh, when, when do you throw in the towel and write, and write the
3: code? I think it boils down to how complex the interaction is. So okay. if I'm making a single API call that returns a single piece of data and I'm working with that forever on, you know, that's a simple curl call. I could see that on the flip side if i need this complex interaction where i need to maintain state of these complex objects and update them in time then i really want to hook in in code
0: makes sense i uh you're making me think for some reason about like an ansible script where Um, you start with like a curl command because you just need a piece of data and then you know, uh, (laughs) a couple of days of of hacking Ansible later and you're like, oh, I should have just written something um, to wrap it, but.
3: That could be the case. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) things grow like that. And at some point you decide, oh, shoot, you know, let's scrap this and, and switch to hooking into the API. Yeah. It's
0: this is this is the thing that's so strange, right? A lot of times we're using one tool, like an Ansible or a Terraform. Um, we we hit we hit an edge where we can't easily get, um, data that we want, so we're we're stuck going. I mean, we see this we see this in people using the product. We actually wrote, um, uh, a, a, a plugin for this, the Curlhammer. Or what do we what do we we do code curl hammer? Um can you can you talk about you the, the evolution of, of that? Because that that was that's I think a great example of us trying to solve this problem.
2: You mean the callback stuff?
0: The callback stuff, yeah. yeah. I was mean, at one point we were we had, had this idea that we called foot gun, but the callback stuff evolved to be not that
2: well so Really, for all of that, the usage was to prevent um, leakage of credentials and control of access. So Hmm. for our provisioning environments, we would have actions that we would want to do on behalf of the machine. And since our tasks run in the machine's environment, we were pushing credentials and requiring access to integrated services. And so that might not have or have allowed access remotely. So think of it like, hey, we want to update the DNS system with this new host name based upon information that we got at the machine, like its MAC address and other stuff like that. So we're going to try and update the host name on the on the DNS server. Well the policy in a in a proper one is that machines can't update their own address, right? So our whole set of foot gun behavior was okay, so we'll allow an action that will be proxied by the DRP endpoint to then take that API action. That way the and that way it could be some arbitrary script. Well, that's also scary and requires then somebody else to write that script. So what we then provided was our callback system allows you to put their credentials and authentication for an external API, define the payload you want to do based upon the machine, and then our plugin in Go will marshal all that to an API call and provide the the result so that the credentialing and all of that can be maintained and controlled outside of the machine's access path. Well, am I talking? Can you guys hear me? cool yeah yes i was worried i had muted myself sorry um outside of the um access and control of the machine but the drp endpoint could act as a secure credential store and even eventually using vault and other integrations to have access to the actual credentials versus having that distributed down to the machines that way the machine only got the data it needed or potentially allowed triggering based upon what the administrator allowed and the outbound credentials there. So it wasn't necessarily a, hey, let's give the a way to wrap APIs. It was more, how do we provide distributed API proxying in a secure way? And then that evolved into, well, to make it easier for um, our operators who were just getting like, hey, can you just do a post to this location? Okay, This allowed them to proxy just that post or the various other actions.
1: By the way, interesting
3: name, Footgun. Well, is is there a reason (laughs) you
2: named it Footgun? Yeah, because we were worried our customers were going to shoot their toes off. Uh,
0: Sometimes we name things to imply the danger, the adequate, the appropriate level of danger.
2: The the (laughs) initial implementation basically allowed you to pass a script kind of from the admittedly controlled by the administrator, but, and then run that in the default environment of the endpoint. That's got all sorts of security problems that we... Rapidity courage and away from
0: and I think it's I think you're bringing up a really important point about you know part of the challenge with any of these you know any of these these processes is that you can leak credentials um in in ways as as you're working with the apis i mean with any of these systems it's one of the challenges is to is to not leak that type of information um the 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 other thing you said that I thought was really interesting is a lot of times it's it's a post, it not you know, like I I I started off thinking like, oh, this is about getting information, but a lot of it from an automation perspective is actually posting back to places, um, even more than a get. And I think people yeah. forget that. Go ahead.
2: We allowed both, and the yeah. data came back, and we then made it the responsibility of the caller to parse the data. So in general, we focused on encouraging them to pass back JSON objects and stuff like that but it's not it wasn't required and this is where in some regards to me most of the API discussions are really around what contracts are you expecting and how are you enforcing and and managing those right because in some regards the, the callback plugin as we used it just became a conduit it was still dependent upon in our case the client task writer to understand what service they're talking to the API they're calling the contract of what each action means. And so um, that's why I have a little bit of problem when people are talking about versioning APIs. I mean, I think it should be done so you can figure out, but most of the interactions are all dependent upon understanding what the actual contract is between those calls and the versions are the a way to represent that contract but that's not necessarily enforced or guaranteed
0: there was some design work that we 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 saw in, in openstack um not meaning to give every anybody a fit but that that had this idea of embedding metadata into the calls to allow the caller to specify version like the version that they wanted supported. Um, yeah, I, I, that always struck me as
3: I've, I've seen that somewhere else too. Yeah, um, I want to say, uh, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Where uh, really enterprise-y software for keeping secrets, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on the name. Uh, but they, yeah, you would be able to request the version of the API that you wanted in your initial request. So I guess if they supported multiple versions of the API, you could get re- a response back.
0: It seems incredibly dangerous to me.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, well, because... I mean, there's a whole push, right, for the Swagger based discoverable API. And that's all well and good. And I find it interesting as a conceptual kind of thing, but the, the in actual practice though, we, I find that you're now making the developer of the client have to make that math, and then they're building mm-hmm. that into what they're providing, be that a CLI or a front end or whatever that then understands either the nuance of versions one, two, and three, and knows how to call the appropriate calls or deal with the fact that version four might not return the same metadata to then drive. And so yes, I guess you can then have smarter clients that will come back and say, wait, that's something I don't understand how to do, which there's value in that, but it's just as frustrating to the user in some regards because they're not achieving what they want to do or, what I see a lot of in like our uses of like redfish, right? Redfish is somewhat discoverable, but you have to then have, you know, a five person team dedicated to writing the discoverable nature to figure out then how to map things in the discovery path Mm -hmm. to then make that viable to just figure out how to reboot a server because five of them put the reboot locations in different places. And so, yeah, I guess it's kind of ah. discoverable, but so, it's
0: not. I mean, it's so well it, you're what you're describing is, is that you get back something, you have to interpret it. And then then you're back to the client having to make a decision about how to how to use the instead of having a, a strict standard that people adhere to. If it's if there's a degree of flexibility there, then now you're back to a two call minimum plus and in, right. plus intelligence. Well,
2: yeah. well, so now you have to make a smarter client. OK, well. We do that through our CLI, right? Mm -hmm. We handle a lot of the version checking, right? Our 4.13 client will still work with 4.7 and 4, right? All of those kind of things. Now, you may not get all the feature functions forward looking, but from an API design perspective, we've kept those drivable. Okay. And if we didn't, we can still make in the CLI the decisions to handle that. But the point is we as the providers of that CLI took care of it. If we were saying, hey, just do curl yeah. and providing the base API, then we're expecting all of our consumers of that to make that decision. Now they could, they can, they can make the decision based upon a specific version, and that's all well and good. But now they've locked themselves in. So in some regards, you
0: know, but you don't know. But right, this is and this is, I think, part of the whole question. If if you're automating against an API, you know, it's it's really hard for the API provider to actually know. Who's calling you? What versions they're expecting? Um, what they've wired in to expect the output? Right? You're you're really operating um, in the blind from that perspective. Is there is there something that the
2: well the, the, people, the consumers
0: think... can use to protect themselves or you know this help help the conversation?
2: Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say I I think um, a different aspect though is like what. I guess Klaus was kind of alluding to initially was if I'm writing to an API, I then get to make the decision what I'm going to pay attention to or not. And then based upon how rich the API is in defining its versioning schemes, right, then you can at least make some choices. But now you're choosing to make, whether you're doing it yourself in your own curl or your own programs, right, a set of guardrails that are going to keep you from falling off some edge, right? And so now you're talking about what's your client-side design rigor. How much are you testing? How much are you worrying about? How is this a throwaway? Is this a, are you going to try and reuse it? Is it supposed to last for years? Is it supposed to last for 10 minutes, right? All of those kind of decisions now have to fall into your thought process.
0: Which is actually put back to where a CLI is nice, because you're hoping the CLI designers have done some of that work.
2: Well, and so now we're yeah. talking. And so that's where, to me, most of the API automation discussions all kind of devolve into making decisions around contracts. Right. It's really what you're defining is some contract. I'm going to do a I'm going to give you a you're going mm-hmm. to give me B. Right. Now, whether that's a http post or whatever and so you can say i'm going to follow the api because i want to be at that level okay that's fine but now you're reliant on that's your contract with vendors right in theory you could say like i could try and write to aws's you know ever-changing sdk from (laughs) their go v1 to their go v2 right okay there may be reasons to do that or I could rely on the fact that the AWS CLI is going to handle that for me.
1: Uh, That's a stronger
0: contract,
2: yeah. Well, and so the contract there is I'm going to give, you know, call AWS, you know, S3, copy, blah, you know, file to file. All right, now I've got a contract that I could do that. Sure, I could do it through an API set of libraries, and that might make sense. But if I'm looking for a consistent, you know, way to just upload a file, well, that may be a better way to do it.
0: Yeah. I AWS. There was a time when AWS um, changed, and you know, they people have to do this. I'm I'm just using them as an example, but they had a contract when you created a VM, and you could you could put it on a, you know, they defaulted a uh, a network, a, a virtual network behind the scenes, and. They deprecated that functionality so that when you created a machine, it would no longer allow you to have a default network. Um, and so it, it, it ultimately got to a point where it broke the, the, the API calls and the CLI was, was breaking too. I, I mean, that's a backend behavior. That's effectively an implied contract in the API is there a you know is there a defense for that i mean what do what do we how do we cope with the need you know it's a necessary change i'm assuming on their part but and you just you just have to be aware that at some point back-end apis are going to break even though the calls are valid calls are valid does that make sense, right? Because a lot of times these calls have tons of stuff going on behind the scenes. It's not as simple as I'm dropping, you know, I, I think you're right. You have to upload a file or you're getting some information. Sometimes we're, we're doing, we're calling APIs that have much more complex backend behaviors. Um, I know for our stuff, there's times when you make a simple, what <laughs> could be a simple call? I'm just setting a workflow on something. What, should, what what could go wrong? And all of a sudden there's a, there's a pretty big consequence To that operation
1: that's where you end up using the intermediate representation which is the programming language specific library published by the api owner Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the api directly and then at least you have i mean you don't have a guarantee that it won't break but you know that a specific version of the client library is going to give you predictable results and that the API owners is going to or at least is supposed to publish a new version of the client library when they update their API. Makes sense.
0: Would and the challenge is, is that you could wire your calls to fail if the API changes but it's not always clear if the API has changed in some breaking way and your call would keep working without maintenance which would be ideal ideal from an API design perspective um so it's like there's this balance of you you don't want to you know you're going to you're going to make the call if you assume that if a version changes the call's going to fail and you Proactively fail, then that that's as much a problem as anything else.
1: Um, that, that that's, in my opinion, a failure of the API owner, and that they failed to version their API properly. Okay. If you make a backwards incompatible change, it's supposed to increase your version so that um you you don't create these kind of transition problems.
0: So, but what about the the issue of side effects from this right a simple post or a simple get fine but there are definitely times when you know you're making an api call um you know provisioning a vm is a great example right you're you know you're making a request you you have to wait until that request is fulfilled to get that's one of the things that makes terraform um, you know, to me there, there's there's weird things where somebody where there's little things that something does that are uh, you know a much bigger deal, much harder than they real people realize. But like doing Terraform where it waits until it gets the ID back for the machine. Um, it calls you know t- six different calls for you. It chains a whole bunch of stuff together. Gets back the actual ID from the cloud provider that wasn't in the first or second or third calls. Um, you know that's that's a that wrapping those all those api calls is a big deal um why terrifying you know it's one of the reasons that that product does you know was so revolutionary when it was doing it um i you know how do we what defenses can we use to look at apis Mm -hmm. using apis when the the goal is to create a to create a secondary action or something like that. Is there. A good a good
1: strategy. It it depends largely on the design of the API. Um, I mean, you can either interact with it synchronously, in which case the API would likely have an endpoint uh, like of the type. Okay, wait for this resource to be ready, or it's on a synchronous call, in which case, like the first call gives you a an ID of for the resource that will be created, and then you use a second API call to watch for that resource to be ready. And and let let's be honest, like. The same happens on, on with the command line interface as well. Like some, some command line interfaces are are the duelings are 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 asynchronous by nature as well. So you have to repeat the same pattern. Other ones are synchronous. Um so it's not like this is an issue that's unique to APIs or CLIs. Right.
0: No, it's not. I, I know that you know, and, and one of the things I have on the list in in here that probably is a, a dedicated topic um, to come back to probably just make it next week's topic, which is this the whole WebSocket event um, component, um, because I because right, what I know, like when we build CLI, it 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 will subscribe to an event, waiting for things waiting waiting for uh, certain times. It'll it'll subscribe to an event, waiting for actions to occur. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm actually I don't want to pull us down this because I I uh, we we should save that as as a continuation on on API discussions. Um, I guess the thing that I'm I'm wondering about is how do how do we do a good job using APIs and to know that we're do- we switch from synchronous to asynchronous. Operation, right?
1: Well, I mean, the the API typical. Okay, uh, in our well-developed API, you will see the ability to call to do both a synchronous and asynchronous call based on on your need. Okay. Um,
0: Literally, literally should be a flag for block or don't block, is what you're thinking. I'm, I'm...
1: No, not necessarily like it, it might even be like, okay, do this and then the other one is do this asynchronously. Um like similarly, like for example, with with, with APIs that interact with, with lists, like you, you typically have mm. like a a raw Uh, API, which may have limited capabilities, let's say it has a cutoff if the list is above a certain size, but then you have the paginated API uh, equivalent that then lets you get more data, you just need to do more calls.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm thinking about, and and Greg, I'd be interested in your thoughts with this because we've seen this evolution. There's two evolutions here. One is web servers have gotten better about um handling sockets that stay open while you're waiting for something to to occur. But I know we've had a long evolution of adding having to add pagination because you know somebody would show up and do a I want all records out of your database or right or they they say, oh I want this one one thing, one one instance out of a thousand item list. So they make the request and then client side filter, and, and we've had to come back and add in um, some pretty sophisticated filtering. Yeah. Um, there's an API lesson in that of, of, and, you know, making sure people know they can not just bulk request every every record, and then JQ filter it down, or, you know, I don't know Greg, how how do we how do we communicate that?
2: Well, so there's, yeah. um, hmm. there's, well, specifically to the topic you jumped to on lists and data, right? Um, some of that as part of the API design is dealing with how do you provide the ability to keep yourself from being overrun Mm. right that's how we've thought about it and you know in all honesty we've kind of evolved it ourselves because we've had to deal with the hey we want to query all a million jobs we're like yeah don't do that now we've kind of let you stream that if you want to but in general we don't encourage it and so we've started putting in to the API definitionally. And because of the way we focus and think about our APIs, we have the add but not modify and don't delete kind of model. So we can incrementally add things to the API that facilitate that behavior and start taking advantage of it. So we've added pagination and counting and all sorts of other things into our list apis so that we can facilitate the driving of that kind of pattern of like okay we want really three objects don't ask don't ask us for a thousand and we'll and then you sort it tell us what you're going to sort and we'll give it give you the three because it'll save everybody time um so that's become what we've enabled now you know there's elements of our API definition that we've kind of added that to the whole process in a i think somewhat reasonable way so it doesn't break usage it follows a generalized pattern right offsets and pages and filters and all of those things kind of match a reasonable pattern so that's fine one of the challenges so on some of it is the usage of other technologies that have popped up, right? And so, and this is where I think we keep exploring periodically is things like you could replace or extend or add parallel some of the like GraphQL kind of concepts of, I want an object from you. I want the object to look like this. It needs to come from this kind of set, filtered by this, looking this way. And then your API dynamically responds to, well, here's the object requested, refiltered to the way you wanted to look at it. And that's interesting, but it then puts a lot of operational work on your, back end to be able to handle those. So then it mm. becomes a trade-off of, are you are you the marshaller and presenter of the data? Or are you just the source of information and, and trying to facilitate some content? And I think it's one of them we've kind of struggled with because some APIs have said they're going full in on that. It built around that and drive that. But then they suffer some performance kind of issues at times depending on how they're dealing with the data. And then your client gets much more complex because it has to be smart enough to know how to generate that, the, that data, those queries and marshal the responses coming back. So it's one of those, it's kind of okay for a developer who wants to write their own client, but it's not necessarily what the end user wants where the end user may want a more directed response from the API. So those become trade-offs. And so right now we've chosen not to do the effort because in our system, actually adding like GraphQL and things like that are a little challenging because our data storage and data models are harder to adjust that. But
0: so, so you're you're saying that if you were doing GraphQL, then when I made a query against the system, I I'd find the
2: interconnected
0: data more easily rather than
2: and No, no, no. No, it's more I mean, that's a potential option as well. Okay. Of saying I want this object, and it's actually a join of these three things, and you and I want these five fields that's the part I was getting at right is in our system, we may have a machine object that represents you know a megabyte of data as a raw json blob well i don't want to I don't want to ask for a hundred of those right or a thousand right. of those. so what I want is I want every machine's i p address right mm-hmm. well. So we've now created into our system, the ability to say like, well, okay, send me that uh, object and give me just the fields, right? Don't give me parameters or give me just these specific parameters with the fields. Right? So we've, we've created our own data limiting set where there are technologies that we could try and leverage or look into leveraging that would allow us to say like, look, I'm asking for a machine object, but really the object I want back or is a list of objects that have name, address, and um, access password, right? Right. Okay, just send me that data back. Don't send me back anything else. Okay, that's cool, but now you need a richer client that knows how to build those queries, and then you need a richer backend that has to deal with that.
0: And, and push back in. And you need a more savvy, you need a more savvy. This is to me what the whole the whole idea of of what we're trying to get to is this idea that, you know, if you're you're, you're there's two things in this. One is you need a person, a designer who's trying to get information out to, to think through the fact that they might, you know, be able to make a more advanced query, um, which is part of to me a trade-off right you could build in all these things into an api but you might not have somebody who's you know understanding to how to build the queries in a in a sophisticated enough way
2: right mm -hmm. go ahead well and so then now we're on to you know why is your why is the person using the api using the api assuming mm-hmm. assuming they have something they want to accomplish
0: and this to me is where from they like what what i'm hoping to drive to in these in these in the in the tech ops series is i'm using i'm using the api because i am i have a machine i'm automating against it and so because there's there's traps what you're describing to me is this classic as a human I'm okay to pull down a whole bunch of stuff and sort through it and so I might code that into my query and then let the client do it and then you throw that into an automation and now it's happening once a minute <laughs> and and you have it's an API call so you have you know the 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 server doesn't really know where that call's coming in from and you're being attacked because somebody threw what looked like a really simple you know, Python script or they cut and pasted a curl command with a JQ after it into a into a CI pipeline, and now you're getting hammered, right? Because you didn't think, okay, wait, before I re- retrieve a whole bunch of stuff, I better, you know, maybe I can filter it on the server side down to the one thing I want, or the, the a smaller set, or... Yeah, test more. That's that's sort of where I'm where I'm I'm trying to go with these questions. Is I'm consuming API. How do I make that durable? How do I make it smart and performant? Which is I think where we where where we're getting. On on the other side, right? One of the things I know for some APIs we've we've built, we've put in rate limits, um, which can be dangerous. Um, uh, do you have a, do you have a thought on how to do that gracefully or how to do it safely on both, both on the consumption side or on the server side?
3: I just to give a concrete example, maybe like when GitHub decided the API limit on pulling images was much lower and now everybody's lab environments, can't pull container images. Mm, That's
0: That's, a good example.
1: (laughs) Was that GitHub or Docker Hub? Docker Hub.
3: I'm I'm sorry, I'm not sure what I said. Yes, yeah, Docker Hub. I think that's On the other
1: hand... Sorry.
3: No, no, go ahead. Really, just saying that this was an example. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, on the other hand, it is also promoted a much needed uh, revolution in adoption of container proxies that, uh, had previously been largely unimplemented because people were like, because the effort was didn't have enough payoff. So, yeah.
0: That well, that's one of the things like, I think about like uh, there was we and we've talked about this like two years ago now. Chris Short had put, posted an ISO in S3 several gigs of transfer. Somebody, you know, pulled it as part of a CI pipeline and you know generated a thousand dollar plus bill um overnight for it. Um it's you know, it's it's a funny thing like when you're consuming an api to be conscious of it um, and also cons- being aware that you know you might be and we've seen this happen with us where your um response times degrade because you're being rate limited and if in your api might not you might not have coded awareness of that into the into the platform as you as you do api consumption
1: on the flip side also you have much more fine con- fine grained control over what API endpoints you consume mm-hmm. using the API directly versus a CLI, which is opaque.
0: That is very true. You can get into serious trouble with whereas a CLI just says, Okay, sure, you got it. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we didn't, we didn't talk through and is uh, probably not even a 200 level concept But is is looking at the return headers and and actually there's usually a wealth of data Um, when I'm writing automation, I almost never spend time looking at return headers new X's I will but um, like there's actually a lot of information that that comes back with the data that we don't I I don't usually think about that's that's probably to even more advanced than what I'm thinking for this.
1: Yeah. Content type, encoding yep. Cool.
0: all right, that that's the hour. I, I'm going to pick up, uh, and I'll make a note in the calendar. We'll pick this back up with the event processing on APIs for next week, because I think that um, this this sort of idea of of how do we turn an API into something more scalable. Um, and reduce some of the load on the back end is, is a good one from from people to code. And it definitely changes, the, you know, it can dramatically improve how your how automation works um, and how resilient it is. so is. I'll keep that topic for next week. Cool. Thank you, everybody. Thank this you. Was, this is what I was hoping we would, the, the, the detail, the type of conversation um, that I was hoping we would be having with this. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate everybody's
1: Thanks. time. Thanks. hope you enjoyed the
0: conversation here. I'm really excited to see the TechOps uh, series being concrete and specific, really addressing the knowledge gaps that I see in instructional material uh, to teach you and share techniques to improve how we consume apis even if you're an experienced uh, developer or devops engineer the things that we're talking about are helpful reminders provide additional design contacts help you avoid pitfalls and traps in building systems and it's always important to us to have people join bring your experience your questions your observations into the sessions you can find out our schedule and more at the 2030.cloud i will see you there Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software we would love to get your opinion and 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 hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding all part of building a better infrastructure operations community thank you